uh, deciding that what I had prepared was not what I needed to speak on. And so uh, continuously I wrote and I scrapped it and I wrote and I scrapped it and the uh, recycling people at Republic Services got a lot of paper out of me over the last few weeks. But I think now we've landed on what the Lord wants me to share with you today. And uh, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, that's okay. Um, I, I hope that the, that the message that God has given me will be helpful to you in some way um, as my family moves on from the branch and I give you sort of my parting words. Um, and, and you, as a church, you march forward without us. Uh, open up your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be in the first... Um, well, we're going to do verses 3 through 9 today. I, I think the first 12 verses of the first chapter of 1 Peter could be probably 12 sermons. Um, you could probably do it about a verse at a time. Doug, maybe you want to take that on at some point. Um, and, and I thought about trying to cover the first 12, maybe even 13 verses, because I, I love them. Um, but I think uh, we need to look specifically at verses 3 through 9 today. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I trust that the Holy Spirit is at work within me and that he will be at work within you, and he's going to use this time for exactly what he purposes. Um, so hopefully you're there by now. Uh, read along with me, First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." I want to admit something to you this morning. I worry about the future every day. Um, I worry that this decision that we've made to move our family back to the Midwest was a bad decision. I worry that I'm not skilled enough or smart enough to do my job well. I worry that my children will fall for the traps that are set by them for them by the world, and that they will never fully give themselves to following Christ. And, and I worry about the next catastrophe in our lives. Um, I, I worry that it's only a matter of time before things go terribly wrong for my family because things have been too good for too long. Uh, and I'm assuming that I'm not alone here today in my worry. My assumption is that if I gave you 30 seconds, you could come up with your own list of worries. 
Maybe you worry about your kids too. Perhaps you're worried that you might never get married or have children. Maybe you're worried about the future of our church. What might happen when many of your friends move away? I would guess that in one way or another, we are all worried about the future. And, and my worries, I know, I can speak for myself, these worries are not new. In fact, you might say that I'm a well-practiced worrier. But God has been faithful. And, and one of the reasons I want to address our worries about the future today in the context of First Peter is because of the many lessons that I've learned throughout my time, throughout my family's time in Corvallis, about our worries and our trials and the faithfulness of God. So that will largely be our focus in this passage today. Our worries, our trials, and God's faithfulness. Uh, The unknowns of our future can be such a scary thing. But here Peter talks about a future that is so good and so supremely secure that it really can make our worries fade completely away. So let's start by looking at verse 3 together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter's starting point and his focal point as he is going to begin this this 10-verse run-on sentence that goes through the end of 12. Um, There's periods, there's punctuation in our Bibles, but in the Greek, this is one sentence. Um, And it begins with this declaration. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everything contained in the following verses is meant to point us back to this truth that God is for us, that he has redeemed us, and he is good. And so we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to express gratitude for who he is and what he's done for us. So Peter begins here. Now, what is it that he's done for us? What has God done for us? Um, look down at the, at the rest of verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a statement. God has joined us to himself, to Jesus, the living savior, the only one who is able to conquer death itself. And because Jesus is alive, Our hope is alive. This is what we celebrated last week at Easter. We we are born again to a living hope because of the finished work on the cross and because Jesus rose from the dead. So we have a living hope. And it's not by our works, it's solely because of Jesus and through Jesus. And so because we have this living hope, we have an amazing future to look forward to. Look with me at the way Peter describes this, this future in verse four. Again, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Take a moment to think about the things, the kinds of things that you really long for in this life. What are the things that you think would give you hope or do give you hope? If you're being honest with yourself, do you, do you ever stop and think, if I just had fill in the blank, my life would be complete. 
my life would have hope. My life would be so much better. And then I would have a hope for my future. Now maybe I'm alone in this. I don't think I am. Uh, I know that this is a trap that Becca and I, I'll say that I fell into before Becca and I had kids. There was a doctor that ripped my heart out when he said that we wouldn't be able to have children. And I realized it. Just like that, my hope was gone. Now what does that reveal about this thing I was putting my hope in? Was it imperishable? It perished before I even had it. And after that I put my hope in foster care and adopting. And over and over and over again, those hopes proved to be perishable as well. And even now, we have a beautiful and amazing six-year-old daughter, and we have a three-month-old son, and both of them are miracles in their own right. But should I place my hope for the future in them? James 4.4 tells us, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's what life is. That's why we can't place our hope in people. So what are you placing your hope in? Is it imperishable? Is it guaranteed to continue? Is it an inheritance that's guaranteed to last you for all of eternity? Is it an undefiled inheritance? That's the second word Peter uses. He says the inheritance granted us through Jesus' blood that's kept in heaven for us is undefiled. Now you know as well as I do that even the most virtuous and legitimate things in this life can become defiled almost immediately. Uh, Simply put, if any of these things that you seek after have you at the center of it, or anyone other than Christ, it's already defiled. Even the best things. It's spoiled. It, It can become idol worship. It becomes hope in creation instead of the creator. Um, so it's necessary to ask this question. Is this thing that I'm hoping for, that I'm placing my hope in, is it undefiled or has it become spoiled? And lastly, Peter says our inheritance as believers is unfading. And this one, this is the easiest for me to wrap my mind around because time and time again in my life, I've, gotten, I've actually gotten the thing that I hoped for, right? I've achieved it I, or I've received it. Um, and then within a very short time, that thing has let me down. When I was a kid, I would put my hope in material things. My daughter does this now. And then the toy breaks, (laughs) right? And even as adults, in a much more real and painful way, uh, we try to put our hope in fulfilling relationships. But still, eventually the newness wears off and then the tough work of loving people well begins. And we realize that every single thing in this life is fading except God and his word, everything. And in his word, God promises us that the inheritance that we have to look forward to in our future isn't like any of these things I just described. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's perfect. And in verse five, we see that for those who are in Christ, it can never be taken away from us and we will enjoy this inheritance forever. 
And that one is hard for me to wrap my mind around forever. The promise of our inheritance is certain because we are kept by the power of God. We are guarded by God's power through faith, verse 5 says. And this, what this does is this enables us to endure through all of the uncertainties and the worries of life through faith until the day that Jesus returns. But now as, as we move on, we've been talking about worries, uh, but as we move on to verse 6, Peter brings a new wrinkle uh, into what it means to live in this hope provided by the gospel. What do we do when our worries come true? That just rhymed. I didn't mean for it to. But what, what, what do we do? Maybe it'll help you remember that. When our worries actually come true. What do we do when our worries turn into real trials, real stuff? Not just things that we're worried about, but things that are actually happening to us. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. <clears throat> One sec. Now, <clears throat> it's helpful to point out, um, thinking about verse 6, these trials, that the audience that Peter is writing to is a group of people that no longer fit in where they were. Uh, they are exiles because of their faith in Jesus. In verse one, he addresses them as elect exiles. And, and despite their exiled state, he asserts that these elect are actually rejoicing. Verse, verse six, um, he says, in this you rejoice. Uh, he doesn't give a command that they should rejoice. He makes a statement that they are rejoicing. That their rejoicing through trials is to be expected. That it's a normal part of the Christian life to rejoice despite uh, and in our trials. And this is challenging to me. And, and this is the second major reason that I wanted to preach this passage to you today. Because when I think back on my family's time, almost seven years in Corvallis, it is very easy for me to focus on our trials. It's very easy for me to, be, to have that be the only thing that I think about. To actually forget all of the good that God has done and to think of this time as marked by Catastrophes, tragedies, heartbreak. You pick your word. And, and I, don't, I don't want to dwell on them today, um, but be, because we're a fairly small community here, I know that you know. You, you know our timeline. And you know that Becca and I have experienced some of the darkest days of our lives in this town. I realized it was bad when I had people in their 80s and up telling me that we had already lived through a life's worth of troubles <laughs> in our first 10 years of marriage. And I laugh about it, but at the time, um, we cried. And I learned a lot of lessons from that. Um, and I learned that 
and I was reminded that God is faithful. And there was a lot of passages of scripture that we clung to during the darkest times, um, including this section of 1 Peter. Uh, but another one is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, our, in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. And I had, I had a, a co-worker, a co-laborer, we like to call him, in the Navigators that told me about this verse in the midst of one of our trials. And he pointed this out to me and he said, maybe one of the reasons that God is taking you through this time is so that you can be a comfort to others. And it might not feel like it today, but someday you might meet somebody who's also going through something similar, and you can be a comfort to them. And I think that that's one of the more significant reasons that Becca and I have gone through a lot of the different things that we've gone through. And I've already seen God work in such a way that we've been able to comfort others. Um, so. I'm preaching this passage today, and I wanna use the rest of my time to try to comfort you. Uh, I want to point to you, point you to what Peter wrote to these exiles that were suffering through trials. That is because of what we were just reminded of in verses three through five, that we have a secure salvation, and we have an inheritance that cannot be taken away. Therefore, he says, in this we rejoice. Remembering this truth of scripture can shape your response to trials in such a way that you don't have to live your life with an attitude of, woe is me. Living, living out the knowledge of your promised inheritance with Christ, I think, is the greatest antidote to becoming a grumpy Christian. Instead, you can have an attitude of joy and contentment. You can be one of those people that's going through an incredibly difficult thing and people will say to you, how are you smiling? How are you getting through this? And they'll compliment you and, it will, and, the, and the, um, you'll be tempted to feel really good about that compliment, like I'm strong. I am getting through this with a smile, aren't I? But that's not true. It's, it's a total and complete reliance on Christ and this promise of our future that allows us to be able to go through the stuff that we go through in this life. In verse seven, Peter offers another reason for our trials and, and one of the reasons that we must walk through these necessary trials is so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is really good news. If you are a Christian, the trials that you go through are necessary, and God has a specific purpose or purposes in mind for them. They aren't random. God is not indifferent to your pain. He's not distant from you in them. They're not outside of his plan. 
he's using them for your good. He's using them to refine your faith in the same way that gold is refined by fire, Peter writes. When gold is exposed to a hot enough fire, everything in it that's not genuine, pure gold melts away. And in that refining process, the gold becomes more valuable. It becomes more of what it's supposed to be, its truest form. It's like this with our faith in trials. If you trust in Jesus, then when God allows you to be exposed to trials, whether it's a stubbed toe or a cancer diagnosis and everything in between, the smallest of trials and the biggest, these trials are an opportunity for the purification of your faith in Jesus and him alone. And just like fire is hot and the process of burning away imperfections is painful, our trials can be difficult to endure. And it can feel impossible to rejoice in these sufferings. But we need everything that we might put faith in other than Jesus to melt away. And that's painful. But it's so worth it. And here's the end result at the verse, end of verse seven, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a believer, that's your future. And that's a wonderful place to be. God will hold you firmly in his grip as you walk through this world as an exile until you finish the race and you meet him, you see Jesus face to face, and you stand with him in praise and honor and glory. That's your future as a believer, and it can carry us through. Verses eight and nine, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter says this is how we as Christians respond to Jesus. Though we don't see him, we live by faith and not by sight for now, but we love him. And the clearer we understand what he's done for us and what he promises to do for us, the more we understand how good he really is. As God uses the fire of trials to refine our faith in Jesus and remove the impurities in our faith. Our unbelief is removed and we love him more as we see him more clearly. And we rejoice, we smile, we high five each other. <laughs> We're in God's family, what a good place to be. And, and through our worries and through our trials we still rejoice and we point each other to Christ because God is faithful and he is good. As followers of Jesus, we are supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us to walk through this life with this eternal perspective. And throughout this life, we will be grieved by various trials. It's promised. And although those times can feel so low, and so heavy, we have to hold on to these truths from God. We must cling to Jesus and rejoice 
in the future that he offers because he will carry us through. Let's pray.